Uh, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name's Alastair Newton, and I'm standing here today principally as president of Brismis, uh, but also as an alumnus of the London School of Economics and as somebody who tw spent 20 years working for HM Diplomatic Service. So choose my hat as you feel fit. Um, it's a great pleasure today to have the Right Honourable William Hague MP, Her Majesty's Secretary of State for Foreign and Commonwealth Affairs, with us to present this keynote speech. Um, Mr Hague has kindly agreed to speak for about 20 minutes and that will be followed by a question and answer session. Um, when that wraps up at quarter to six on the dot, uh, there will be a drinks reception following the event and I'd like to thank the American University in Dubai who has been kind enough to sponsor that event. Now, um, both the presentation and the questions and answers today will be on the record and the event Twitter hashtag, I'm told for those of you who tweet, is hash LSE Brismes. So pretty straightforward to remember. Um, could you please all ensure that your mobile phones are either switched off or on silent uh, so that we don't get any um, unexpected interruptions? And having um, gone through those preliminary remarks, Secretary of State, may I invite you to take the microphone? Thank you very much indeed. Uh, well, thank you very much indeed, and thank you for the invitation to join you today and to join in on three days of deliberations, which sounds e extremely useful and interesting. I think it's very important in foreign policy to have a deep consciousness of the past, as well as, of course, foresight in looking to the future. These are essential requirements in foreign policy. And there are many historians, many academics who do invaluable work to ensure that we have a historical perspective in what we do in the Foreign Office and to bring an external perspective to what we do uh, and make sure that amid the torrent of diplomatic cables, intelligence reports and all those things uh, that we see in the Foreign Office, we get the views of people who are not part of the Foreign Office or the intelligence world or other governments. And so I, I look forward to benefiting from your insights today and will not speak for too long so that we can have plenty of uh, questions and suggestions, uh, but you have chosen a fascinating subject to debate, the policy responses to change in the Arab world. Uh, this has taken up a good deal of my time over the last uh, year or so, as you can imagine, and I've been to most or all of the countries most affected by this change. Uh, with many striking memories of them. I was the first foreign minister into Tunisia uh, after the revolution. Uh, it was late at night. It was still under curfew. I didn't see a single human being move between the airport and the British residence. Only one cat crossing the street was the only life, uh, really, that I saw. Uh, to visit there again a few weeks ago and see the heaving traffic jams, uh, meet people from their newly elected parliament, uh, knowing that 24% of them in their parliament were women, um, I will be hosting tomorrow their foreign minister. Uh, that is an exciting prospect for the future and a very big change. And I visited Egypt uh, just before and after the events of the revolution. I've been in there last year to Morocco and to Algeria. Many times to Libya, including at the height of the uh, conflict into uh, Benghazi. It's, it's, um, it was January last year when I visited Syria just before the trouble there began and discussed human rights and democracy and such notions with President Assad. 
and asked him whether what had been happening in Tunisia and Egypt could possibly happen in Syria. And he said, absolutely not. There is no possibility of this happening here because we have an ideology which people support. It turns out that ideology is not enough uh, to ensure strong uh, universal or popular support uh, for a government. I went to Yemen last year as part of the effort to persuade President Saleh to agree to the GCC initiative, which was ultimately successful in helping to bring about political transition uh, in that country. I visited Bahrain just before its troubles uh, began. I've been to Jordan and around most of the Gulf states in the last year and been the first British minister of any description to visit Mauritania at any point in its entire independent history. And so we do our utmost as foreign office ministers uh, to see for ourselves what is happening in these countries, but we always welcome other points of view about a change to which no one has all the answers or every policy prescription right, and there are many legitimate differences of view about how the situation will develop. And I know that your conference this year has focused on the forms and causes of change uh, in the region. In previous panels, previous um, uh, meetings, you've discussed the impact of social media, the role of women in the revolutions in the Middle East. Um, early, earlier in this uh, conference. Uh, two weeks ago, I appeared on a panel in New York with two formidable women activists from Egypt and Libya who have played leading roles in their country's revolutions. And I pay tribute to the countless women who have been at the forefront of change uh, in the Middle East and whose rights must be upheld in the future of all these countries. Uh, Egypt and Tunisia have um, had their first... Um, uh, elections, uh, their first fully free elections uh, in decades. Uh, and we have argued the case for long-term patient international approach by the international community in response to the changes sweeping the region. I think 15 months after the so-called Arab Spring began, the need for such an approach is clearer than ever. Our government regards the Arab Spring as the most important event of the 21st century so far, with implications that will run for many years, and we view it in a positive light. Uh, despite the challenges that it's brought, the suffering being experienced by the people of Syria today, and the economic and social problems that many countries are grappling with, it still holds the greatest prospect for the enlargement of human freedom and dignity of any event since the end of the Cold War. Uh, we do, of course, see these terrible scenes uh, from Syria that we've seen on our television screens for so much of the last few weeks. And I want to say a word about the apparent acceptance today by the Assad regime uh, of the six-point plan of the joint UN Arab League Special Envoy Kofi Annan. And that acceptance uh, would represent a significant first step towards bringing an end to the violence and the bloodshed, but only if it is genuinely and seriously meant. That has not been the case with previous commitments that the Assad regime has made. The key will be concrete implementation that brings a cessation of all hostilities and leads to a genuine political transition, accompanied by freedom of access for humanitarian assistance and the media and the release of political prisoners. So we will continue to judge the Syrian regime by its practical actions, uh, not by its often empty words. Uh, by contrast, as I was mentioning a moment ago, Egypt and Tunisia have held their first truly genuine elections in decades. 
Uh, Libya has a new government after more than 40 years of dictatorship. Uh, and in Morocco, a new constitution has for the first time seen a prime minister from the party winning the most votes. Uh, we understand that the situation in Syria is more complex than the situation in Libya that we dealt with last year. Uh, I believe the action that we took over Libya was correct. Uh, we sought and obtained a United Nations Security Council resolution authorizing uh, all necessary measures to protect the civilian population. Uh, we were part of an international coalition that came together to uh, enforce that resolution. I think by acting promptly as we did, diplomatically and militarily, we say we potentially saved thousands of lives uh, in Benghazi. And when I visited there uh, a few months into these events in June last year, I was truly inspired by the people I met who were fighting against Gaddafi. And from that moment on, I was absolutely convinced uh, that they would be successful. They were successful in the end with some assistance from us in the enforcement of the UN resolutions, uh, which we did without Western boots on the ground, uh, without the loss of a single British life in action. It therefore was a successful model of intervention. But it has not made us gung-ho about a military response to these situations. Uh, in the case of Syria, the international community is not as united as it was on Libya. Uh, in any military intervention, there would be a greater risk of it spilling over into wider conflict or into other neighboring uh, nations. Uh, the military force required would be vastly greater than in the case uh, of Libya. Uh, and the best solution, if it is ever available, is in any case an agreed political transition. So we have to understand and appreciate that each nation is different and each situation is different, even though they are part of a um, of a wide and, and widespread general pressure for change in many countries uh, of the Arab world. The international community's response to the Arab Spring must reflect the scale and the enormity of this and of the challenges that these countries now face. And if instead of mounting a long-term response, we were to turn away from the region, if we were to downgrade our expectations and allow pessimism to prevail, if we and other nations sent the signal that repression and violence would be tolerated, then I think these immense opportunities that are there now could well be squandered. There is a real danger that if we don't show our support and provide impetus to governments managing transition, then we could see a collapse back into more authoritarian regimes, uh, increased conflict or increased terrorism in North Africa on Europe's doorstep. Conversely, of course, it's firmly in the national interest of the United Kingdom that the countries of the Middle East and North Africa become more stable, open and prosperous over time, that they are fully integrated into the international community and global markets, and that they're able to contain security threats while meeting the legitimate aspirations of their people. Our government's approach to the Arab Spring is guided by three clear principles. The first and most fundamental principle is that we can't dictate change from the outside and nor would we want to. In the British government we know that these are not our revolutions or changes and that we cannot determine the future of these countries. We can of course help uh, as we often have, such as with our diplomatic presence and 
activity through uh, the Friends of Yemen, for instance, in, in supporting what the Gulf nations set out to achieve in order to bring about a peaceful political transition in that country. But we can't determine the future of those countries, and nor should we try to do so. Across the region, people have demanded legitimate political and economic rights. In some, the only way to do this has been through brave protests. In other countries, governments have initiated reform processes. All the countries of the region are very different from each other. They're more different from each other than European nations are from each other in their political systems and cultures. And, and the change that they achieve will be as unique as they are. There's no single model of democracy, and it's for the people of each country to determine their own future in accordance with their different individual cultures, traditions, and political systems. In recent elections in Tunisia, Morocco, and Egypt, political parties inspired by Islam have done very well at the ballot box. And of course, some commentators have voiced their concern at what this means for the development of democracy and respect for human rights. We don't underestimate the challenges and stresses this may introduce or the concerns felt by many people in these countries themselves. But the Middle East is not the first and will not be the last region in the world where parties inspired by faith play a role in government and political life. What matters is whether respect for the rights of others is upheld. We will continue to urge all governments in the region to ensure respect for universal human rights in their constitutions and societies. We support and respect the choices made by the people of the region through their votes. We should engage with all political groups, including those inspired by Islam that reject violence, accept democratic principles, and abide by existing international agreements. We'll judge them on their actions, including human rights, and the true measure of the strides made by those countries who've embraced democracy will be whether governments are prepared to surrender power if they're rejected at the ballot box, the ultimate form of accountability. Our second principle is that demands for human rights and freedom are universal and will spread by themselves over time. Demands for open government, action against corruption, and greater political participation will spread more widely in the years to come, not because Western nations are advocating these ideas, but because they are the natural aspirations of all people everywhere. These are basic rights and aspirations, and the rights are enshrined in international law uh, that we in this country take for granted, but it's a truth that governments ignore at their peril. Respect for human rights and dignity, including freedom of expression and equality of women, are to us universal values that must underline political systems. The Arab Spring simply reconfirms, in our view, what history warns that when governments respond with oppression and violence to legitimate demands and hopes, they're doomed to fail in the long term. So we encourage governments to embrace peaceful reform and make decisive moves in the direction of greater political and economic freedom. The third principle is that economic success and political reform go hand in hand. Economic success is essential to support stability and prosperity, but equally there can be no long-term stability without greater political openness. The real economic challenges remain immense. While people in the region want to see moves, in many cases, towards more democratic regimes, they also want to see tangible improvements in their everyday lives, whether it is in jobs or education or a better way of life in other ways. And while some startling change has been brought about in a relatively short space of time, it's also led to sky-high expectations sometimes among the general population. 
Developing the strong institutions and open markets necessary to change the way that people live will take time, and there may not be the rapid pace of change that people, sometimes having paid a high price for their revolutions, expect. And this is why, through the economic facility of our Arab Partnership Initiative, we're already funding £10 million worth of projects in 10 countries across the region to support the building blocks of more open, accountable and prosperous societies. This includes projects supporting media freedom, voter education, transparency in government institutions, job creation, uh, and of course we look to the European neighbourhood uh, policy as an immense effort uh, to try to ensure that European economies are working more closely uh, with the economies of the Middle East and North Africa. We'll work patiently on the basis of these principles over the years ahead. It's our responsibility as a government to pursue policies that support these goals over the long term. So we're working to galvanize other nations to take a similar approach, including through the European Union, through the G8, uh, and through um, working with the other regional groups such as the Gulf Cooperation Council uh, and the Arab League. I've men mentioned the GCC as being at the forefront of leading agreement on Yemen's political transition. The Arab League led the call to protect citizens in Libya and is a driving force in the international community's response to events in Syria. And indeed it is one of the hallmarks of the way we are approaching the region that we are working with countries in the region, not seeking to impose solutions from the outside. Alongside these new opportunities and challenges, we've got to address long-standing challenges in the region. We're firmly of the view that change in the region has made progress on the Middle East peace process uh, even more uh, urgent than it was before. Uh, with the help of the United Kingdom and others in the international donor community, the Palestinian Authority, under the stewardship of Prime Minister Salam Fayyad and President Abbas, has made significant progress in the last few years in building the institutions of a capable and effective state. It's now important that this is matched by progress on the political track. A negotiated end to the occupation is the best way to allow Palestinian aspirations to be met in reality on the ground. Israel and the Palestinian Authority must take the opportunity offered by the recent Jordanian initiative and we hope show the political leadership and courage needed to break the current impasse and make progress towards a negotiated two-state solution. We are at the 10th anniversary of the Arab Peace Initiative, a poignant reminder that a comprehensive peace agreement is possible and without such an agreement the long-term peace and security of the region remains in doubt. In order to rise to all these challenges and the challenge of supporting the people of the region, it is of the utmost importance that we make sure we have the best possible platform from which to launch this support, including a world-leading diplomatic service. And during the opening events of the Arab Spring last year, the Foreign Office was said to be the busiest it's been since the Second World War. No one there can remember the Second World War, but we're confident that it was... Well, almost they can. Um, we're confident it was the busiest uh, period. In the first two weeks of February last year, seven million emails passed through the Foreign Office computer system, ten times the normal volume. Between January and April last year, we helped evacuate 6,000 British nationals from instability and violence in the Middle East, and more than 500 extra staff uh, joined in with our work. 
In order to meet these demands, we've launched the biggest drive to enhance the cutting-edge abilities and diplomatic skills of the Foreign and Commonwealth Office that the Department has seen in modern times. Skills in negotiation, analysis, difficult languages, economics, and policymaking. This new Diplomatic Excellence Initiative covers every aspect of the work of the FCO. And if to, after years in which the level of ambition of ministers has been that government departments are simply fit for purpose, in the Foreign Office we've now set ourselves the goal of excellence in every crucial area of our work. And I'm pleased that through the FCO's research analysts we're represented on the Brismes Council and that more than ever our diplomats are turning to outside expertise to challenge and inform our policy making. Diplomatic excellence means the Foreign Office will be equipped to have a greater impact in government as well as overseas. Our National Security Council now ensures that the whole of British government works together to support our common objectives in foreign policy. And diplomatic excellence means the best possible ideas and analysis will flow from the Foreign Office into the National Security Council. And so after the situation in Afghanistan, which also takes up our time and attention every day, the situation in the Middle East is our top priority and that of my ministerial team. We know that these changes will take time to work through and their full effect will take time for us to understand it. The Arab Spring, if we are to call it that, is a process and not an event. Successful transitions take a decade or more. People mark the end of communism and the closing stages of the Cold War with the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989. Uh, but the change taking place in the Arab world, I would argue, is a more complex change than that. And in any case, Polish worker unions turned on their regime as early as 1980, and Gorbachev's policy initiatives of Perestroika were, and Glasnost were formed in the middle of the decade. In the same way, change in the Arab world is a long process rather than an instant fix. It means the people in the region must have patience, but the international community must have patience too. And our support and dedication to the people of the region must be consistent and unwavering. I must say I've been enormously inspired by the strength and bravery of activists, lawyers, bloggers, journalists, indeed citizens from every call of life who've led change across the region uh, over the past 15 months. Their enthusiasm and their dynamism must be met by our own commitment and resolve to stay the course and ensure that change is not a fleeting one in those countries. So we will keep faith with the people of the Middle East and help them in many ways to try to fulfill their aspirations for a better future, uh, just as uh, we look to fulfill our aspirations in this country. And we are trying to make sure that our diplomatic efforts are fully equipped to do so. I welcome your questions and your suggestions as to how we can do it even better. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you for coming. Thank you for talking to us. 
Are we? I'm Roger, I'm Roger Hardy. I was once with the BBC, but I'm a sort of semi-academic here at LSE now. When, are we in effect saying to the Libyan people, given that things have not gone swimmingly since the fall of Gaddafi, it's not easy in Libya, but are we in effect saying we did our bit, we went in and toppled the dictator, and that in effect we're saying that it's up to you now, and if things go wrong, that's got nothing to do with us. And if we are at least implying that, are you comfortable with that? Uh, do you want me to take them, take a few at a time, or how? Okay. Yes. Yeah. We'll, we'll work along that line. There's three of you there. Okay. Sirwan Jaffer, um, uh, history student. The West, the British included, sorry, the British government included, condemns Iran for its support of Syria as it brutally butchers its people, and rightly so. However, Saudi Arabia likely the world's most totalitarian state, openly sends in its army to brutally put down the peaceful uprising in Bahrain, and Britain and the West are conspicuous and deafening with their silence. How do you think you have even a shred of credibility in the eyes of the world? And the next one along that line, and then we'll take some responses. John Chalcraft, I'm a historian in the Department of Government at London School of Economics. I, I worry that there's a looming catastrophe in the Middle East, and that is the possibility of an Israel or a US attack on Iran. It would not only illuminate the catastrophic double standards of the West in regard to the, an Israel which bristles with nuclear weapons and an Iran which we don't know whether it has a single one, but it would uh, uh, wreak uh, uh, havoc in the region on the scale of an invasion of Iraq of a 2003 or uh, a Sykes-Picot Treaty of 1916. So I, I, can you reassure us that the United Kingdom will have nothing to do with that looming <laughs> catastrophe in the region? Do I gather you're not in favour of the... Uh, <laughs> uh, right. Okay. Shall I try to answer those three first of all? Or? Yes, let, if we take them in uh, threes. Right, three very interesting questions. Um, in the case of Libya... No, we're not saying... Um, you're on your own, although we are saying it's up to you to make decisions about the future of your country. Um, they are making those decisions. They've made some interesting decisions about, um, for instance, people who've been serving in the um, National Transitional Council or in the uh, Transitional Government now can't stand for election in the coming elections. This was a bit of a shock to some of them, uh, I think, but, but they've made that um, decision. They will make their own rules. Uh, they are a country rich in natural resources. Uh, they don't need, uh, while, while they needed some forms of financial assistance during the circumstances of last year, they don't need sustained financial assistance. Their oil production is uh, already rising strongly. Uh, we are continuing to give help in many ways in terms of expertise and capacity. Um, but I don't think it's up to us to try to uh, dictate the course of Libyan democracy. Uh, of course there are reports of difficulties, uh, particularly difficulties of militias being uh, needing to be brought under central authority. And that work is going on. But it would be wrong to expect a country to go through what it's just been through in Libya and that everything will then be orderly and neat uh, immediately. Uh, it's untidy. It, uh, when, when a government is overthrown, uh, 
in this way, its consequences take time to play out. And so I think we do have to bear with the people leading Libya and those who will lead it uh, after the forthcoming elections uh, to assist, yes, with expertise and advice, to really try to open up the economic and trading links between the whole of Europe and all of the countries of North Africa, which is a tremendous positive economic opportunity for the whole region. Uh, we should help in those ways. Um, but I, th I think we shouldn't get, in case of, we shouldn't get carried away with um, pessimism because we hear about the difficulties more in the media than we hear about the successes. In the survey taken recently of, the, of people in Libya, they were overwhelmingly positive about what's happening in their country this year compared to one or two or 40 years ago. And yes, it's a difficult process having elections and bringing militias under control, but for 42 years there were no elections at all. Uh, and the only uh, armed authority rested with a dictatorial government. Um, so they're not completely on their own, but it is for them to chart their future. I think that's how we strike that balance. Uh, the other questions related to Iran in various ways. Um, we're, not, it's, we're not calling for military action. Um, indeed, we have expressly advised Israel not to attack Iran in current circumstances. Um, we're very clear about that, although we also believe that no option is taken off the table in this very dangerous situation. Um, I think that the best hope for a, a peaceful solution of this is what we are doing. Major sanctions on Iran. Uh, we just agreed the um, precise formulation of those at the European Foreign Affairs Council last Friday. Uh, but the simultaneous readiness to enter negotiations uh, we hope those negotiations will start again uh, in the middle of April, and we're working very hard on those. Uh, we're not seeking regime change in Iran. I think it's very important for the Iranian leadership to understand that on our part, that that is not our objective. Our objective is to ensure that their nuclear program is for peaceful purposes, and at the moment they are pursuing a nuclear program which cannot be reconciled with peaceful purposes. Uh, and so uh, that is something because of the danger it presents to nuclear proliferation across the region uh, that we have to face up to, but 100% of our effort is devoted to a peaceful diplomatic uh, solution. Uh, so I do uh, stress that. Um, and on the comparison that was being drawn between um, the situation in Syria and Bahrain, well, well, first of all, of course, the situation is very different between uh, Syria and Bahrain. Um, in Bahrain, we have made our own criticisms of the record of the government, but to give them credit, they set up an independent commission, um, and they are now setting about implementing its recommendations. It's important that they implement them, and it's important that the opposition join uh, in trying to make sure that there, is a, that there is peace and stability, as well as important reforms uh, in Bahrain. Uh, what we've seen in Syria uh, is very different uh, from that. Uh, President Assad is not uh, someone like the King of Bahrain who appoints an independent commission of people from overseas, respected people from overseas, and then tries, tries to implement their advice. Imagine what, a, what an extraordinary moment it would be if President Assad did that. So I don't think it is fair to uh, compare those two situations uh, or the active support of Iran for 
a regime that has now murdered at least 8,000, perhaps many more, of its own people uh, with what Saudi Arabia did in not actually taking part in any way. The, the Saudi um, um, army moved into certain facilities in Bahrain, but it did not engage at all in the internal situation or in um, trying to confront protests there. So those are two very different uh, situations. Of course, there's, um, there's legitimate uh, debate um, about the internal situation of any country, of any country in the world, including our own. Uh, but I don't think those two situations are anything like as close together as the questioner was uh, suggesting. Uh, we must take some more questions, I think. Okay. Very, very short. My question regarding your remark about political Islam or Islamic movement, you mentioned you deal with anyone as far as you respect democracy and the rules of the game. However, uh, when Mr. Cameron visited Egypt after the fall of Mubarak uh, and he met all the groups in Egypt, he excluded the Muslim Brotherhood from the meeting. And I met one of the leaders now of the Freedom and Justice Party and the Muslim Brotherhood, Islam al Aryan, told me why Britain has a stand against the Muslim Brotherhood. And my answer was him, because I studied them for 10 years, I've been here for 15 years, told them the situation in the West, generally speaking, they don't, yeah, yeah, they don't believe in political Islam or Islamic movement to be in power because the history of Europe during when the church controls the state, it was a disaster. And so what I'm asking, don't you agree with me if we use the parliamentarian question? <laughs> <laughs> Don't you agree with me is the change in the British politics regarding the Islamists is pragmatic change shift, not ideological shift. You still believe there is no way to be Islam as a state or religion as a state and democracy, but because you are in power, so we have no option but to deal with them. Thank you. Nasser Qalawun, business analyst. Uh, thank you, Foreign Secretary. When I look at uh, UKTI um, uh, statistics about uh, Middle East and North Africa, I get heartened by uh, kind of positive uh, trade relations between the UK and GCC countries, and the positive and growing. The Arab Spring uh, states, however, uh, not, not that much. Are you worried by this, and when do you anticipate to improve especially as Egypt has problems with the uh, 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 International Monetary Fund and Syria is not on the menu for any help uh, in the near future. Thank you. Mm -hmm. um, My name is Helene von Bismarck from the Humboldt University in Berlin. I'm a historian researching the history of the British Empire in the Persian Gulf. Um, I have a question about Anglo-German relations regarding the Middle East. Last year, the uh, German government refused to get involved in the Western intervention in Libya. Would you say that Anglo-German relations have been seriously damaged by that decision because many people in Germany are afraid that it has been? Okay. Um, again, three very good uh, questions. I think, um, well, maybe I'll take them in reverse order. The relations have not been damaged with Germany. Uh, yes, we disagreed on that. Um, Germany did not vote for the um, for Resolution 1973 at the Security Council. Uh, but Germany then went on to play a helpful role as a member of the European Union, as a member of NATO. Uh, Germany attended the international conferences on, on Libya. Um, so it, it did not take an active uh, military part, um, but it was um, 
as ever, a continuing friend to this country and those who were taking part. And I think on all of the other issues uh, surrounding the changes we've been discussing, uh, we have been much more in tune together, despite that one disagreement over Libya. And the relationship between the United Kingdom and Germany is sufficiently strong that it can easily withstand one disagreement on one foreign policy issue. Um, so um, I, I regard my colleague Guido Vestavella, the Foreign Minister of Germany, as one of my closest colleagues. Um, we speak for hours about all foreign policy issues. Uh, Germany's disposition, general disposition towards the Arab Spring would be very similar to the one that I've described on behalf of the United Kingdom. Uh, so no, it is a sufficiently strong and mature relationship that it has not suffered uh, from that. Right, that was, uh, that was an easy, straightforward answer. Um, uh, let's see. Well, and in a way, there is to the, to the question about trade um, as well. Yes, I am worried about that, is the, uh, is the answer. Yes, our, our trade is growing strongly with many of the Gulf states uh, at the moment, and we, and we welcome that greatly. Um, but the, the, the economic challenge is enormous for some of the countries of North Africa. The economic potential is, is huge as well. Uh, but I, I think it's, it's very important for, uh, to give them economic advice, but they must make their own uh, decisions. In, in Egypt, it is very important to create investor confidence, uh, to make it easier to do business, uh, to show that international business is, uh, is welcome, um, to um, adopt and implement common programs with the International Monetary Fund. It's really important to get on with, uh, with these things uh, because the, the economic challenge for Egypt is at least as great as the political challenge uh, has been. And political stability will only come with, um, I think, with, with economic growth. And we can help with that with a lot of, um, of expertise and, in our view, in Britain, with the opening up of more European markets to trade from North Africa. I think that's, it's very important, despite the Eurozone crisis, that Europe is outward-looking and at this important moment of change, uh, that we're not inwardly obsessed with European affairs. So we have to do that, and it will be important even in a, in a country like Libya with the strong oil resources that I was referring to uh, earlier, not to allow the economy to be permanently hollowed out by the oil uh, resources. Um, it's important for small and medium-sized enterprises to be able to grow. And again, the, the potential is, uh, is tremendous. So um, I see some encouraging signs, particularly in what I've seen in Tunisia so far um, and in Morocco. And so, um, uh, you know, I, I think we can be positively minded about it, but I am concerned about that, that economic change is needed, economic growth is needed on a scale that, um, particularly in Egypt, is, has not yet been delivered. This is the challenge for an incoming president and an incoming parliament in, in Egypt. And that brings us to the question of who we talk to in these countries. We are pragmatic, is the, uh, is the answer. Um, and, of course, we are all feeling our way on this. Um, political change is taking place before our eyes and how we respond to it has to adapt to, uh, to how political parties develop, to what they say, their programs are. Um, when I was in Egypt last May, I met one of the younger members of the Muslim Brotherhood um, and I've authorized British officials and ministers to do so. Um, so certainly we want to get to know uh, and uh, we want to hear, we want to help we want to help uh, 
Um, we want parties to help with our understanding of, of their situation uh, through contacts uh, with them. Um, the, the people, most of the ministers who have come to power in Tunisia uh, stood on a platform associated with, uh, with, uh, with Islamic uh, roots. Um, but as I say, we are, we are already enjoying good relations with them. So we will be pragmatic, but uh, an important test is um, whether governments can change in the future. Uh, if this is about democracy and human rights, well then of course it will be important uh, that people accept democratic change in the future. And provided that is there, we don't expect all governments to agree with us um, or to be ones that are always to our liking. That's democracy. Uh, that's what it's like in Europe. Well, that's what it will be like in many parts of the Arab world. Um, so I think we're wholly used to the idea of living with governments that don't necessarily agree with us about every issue in, uh, in foreign or economic policy. I'm sorry, these are getting to be long answers, so let's um, have some more questions. I've, oh, yes, I've only got a few more minutes. Uh, Alaa Al-Hamarna, University of Mind, Germany. Uh, thank you for being pragmatic, and thank you for uh, declaring that directly. To which extent this pragmatism goes to human rights, women's rights, uh, minority rights in Saudi Arabia, Qatar, and other GCC countries, or dictatorships in the Arab world? Thank you. Well, I think there will be... Well, uh, we support... Um, minority rights, women's rights, and our definition of, uh, of human rights uh, all over the world. Uh, we, of course we do. Um, but I think it's important to recognize that change is taking place in different ways in different countries. Um, and I think change is taking place in some ways in all countries of the Arab world. Um, of course, there have been important social changes in Britain over the last 30 years in many of our social attitudes. Um, in a positive direction, in my view. Uh, that hasn't come about by force or revolution. Society has changed uh, in many ways. Um, well, that, that happens equally um, in countries of the Arab world um, from different starting points within different cultures. Um, I, I must say that um, uh, when I last visited Saudi Arabia, I very much got the impression that for the next generation of women in Saudi Arabia, it will be a very different situation from the last generation. Many of them are university educated. Uh, many of them will, um, uh, will have quite different expectations from their predecessors. And their society will adapt to that uh, in its own way. Uh, and so uh, I think we, I, I don't think that the, I don't think we should expect uh, every society immediately to mirror ours, every model of democracy to be the same. Um, but it's, it, we, we should look out uh, for important changes taking place. We should patiently state our case uh, for the equal human rights that we believe in. Um, but we should expect other societies to deal with these things in their own way and very often at their own, uh, at their own pace, but not hold back on our own our own views uh, on the importance of these things. Okay, I'm afraid we've, um, I've run out of time, but um, I've very much enjoyed the questions. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, could I ask you to remain seated while the Secretary of State leaves, and could I also remind you of the reception? I hope uh, to see you all there. I apologise again to those of you who didn't have time to ask questions today, uh, but I hope you will join me uh, in expressing our thanks as individuals and as Brismis and as the London School of Economics uh, to the Right Honourable William.
William Hay for what's been a fascinating presentation.